city heart be flutter with stutterous sounds. Gutter music for silver lining clouds tumbling down. Town we breathe in memory. Welcome everyone. You are listening to Working Class Heroes Radio, a show about working class culture and politics. We are based in what is currently occupied Lenape land, otherwise known as New York City. My name is Khadija Meder, and I'm one of your hosts tonight. And I'm Mel Gonzalez, your other host. On tonight's show, we'll be talking about the experiences of the unhoused in our cities, particularly during this pandemic. In our first segment, we'll be joined by Emea to talk specifically about the experiences of unhoused individuals who are undocumented in New York City, and in particular, the struggles they face as immigrants and the support networks that exist in the city. We'll be taking calls in the segment, so get ready to call us at 212-209-2877. And for our main segment, we'll be joined by Jasmine and Kali, two organizers with Southern Solidarity, an organization dedicated to liberation, mutual aid, and the cause of unhoused people. But first, as always, here's our roundup of news for this week. On Thursday, the U.S. Air Force bombed eastern Syria in what the Pentagon called a campaign against the Iranian-backed militant groups in response to recent rocket attacks on an airport in northern Iraq that targeted American military personnel. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, the attack killed at least 22 people, none of whom were Iranian. A number of Democrats in Congress have criticized President Joe Biden for taking military action without first getting approval from Congress. But as of yet, there has been little public questioning of the ongoing U.S. military presence in the Middle East. In January of 2020, the Iraqi parliament voted to expel U.S. troops from the country. However, both the Trump and Biden administrations have refused to comply. Some members of the Biden administration, including Vice President Kamala Harris and the White House Press Secretary Jem Psaki, criticized President Donald Trump for bombing Syria in 2017. The bombing is the first public military action taken by the new administration of Joe Biden. The U.S. military has special operations forces in dozens of countries that carry out unpublicized armed campaigns. In upstate New York, a Rochester grand jury decided on Tuesday against indicting the seven cops recorded killing Daniel Prude on their body cameras. Mr. Prude was brutalized during an arrest by Rochester police in March of 2020. Mr. Prude was intoxicated and undergoing a mental health crisis when his family called the cops to help bring him back to his home. Instead, Rochester cops arrested Daniel Prude, placed a hood over his head, and held him face down for over two minutes when he didn't comply. The body cam footage was kept hidden by the Rochester Police Department for over six months out of fear that it would incite further protests and anger in the wake of the uprisings over the murder of George Floyd. The body cam video was eventually re- released in September after the Prude family placed public record requests to secure the footage. Daniel Prude's case has gained national attention after ongoing protests and marches in Rochester gained um, demanded action be taken against the seven cops involved in his fatal arrest. Rochester police continue to face public scrutiny after several recent brutal engagements with civilians. Earlier in the month, Rochester police pepper sprayed a nine-year-old girl and have been criticized for brutalizing protesters during the Black Lives Matter uprising last year. Even though the grand jury records are being released, something that rarely happens, it is unclear if anybody will be held responsible for the death of Daniel Prude. In other news in New York State, the Office of Court Administration will be sending out jury summonses next week 
to begin the process of holding in-person criminal and civil court trials as soon as March 22nd. At the press conference on Tuesday, February 22nd, Lucien Chalfin, spokesperson for the court administration, refused to answer questions from the press about safety concerns for legal staff who are currently not on New York's list for vaccine eligibility. Meanwhile, the state moratorium on evictions ended yesterday, February 26th. So starting on Monday, March 1st, New York state courts will resume housing court cases and will allow landlords to file new cases against tenants. Only tenants who have filed a hardship declaration to housing court or to their landlords will be allowed to extend the eviction moratorium to May 1st. Tenants can submit a hardship declaration up to the point before they receive a marshal's notice of eviction. To fill out a hardship form, go to evictionfreeny.org. Finally, on Monday, the MTA began restoring some late-night subway service, reducing the closure times from 1 to 5 a.m. down to 2 to 4 a.m. The agency has not said when the 24-hour subway service will resume. The MTA stopped overnight subway service when the COVID pandemic started last spring on the grounds that they needed to disinfect the trains. But the Daily News reports that subway cleaners aren't given extra time to disinfect trains overnight, and many believe that the real reason for the closure is to drive out unhoused people from the subway. Deaths of New Yorkers without homes have risen by over 50% since since the pandemic started. At the same time, unhoused people have faced increased scapegoating, especially when they have tried to stay in subway cars and stations instead of overcrowded shelters where social distancing is close to impossible. In April, Governor Andrew Cuomo began one of his pandemic press conferences by calling unhoused people on the subways, quote, disgusting and disrespectful to essential workers trying to get their jobs done. Now the MTA is being sued by the Urban Justice Center and Picture the Homeless, who claim that the new rules against people staying in stations for over an hour are discriminatory against the unhoused. Quote, homelessness is not a problem. It is a responsibility and the MTA shares in this responsibility. End quote, said Barry Simon, an unhoused person involved in the lawsuit. Well, that's it for headlines, y'all. We're going to take a quick music break and then come back to talk about the challenges that undocumented unhoused folks face. We'll be going through the hoops that undocumented people have to jump through in order to seek ways to survive. We'll be answering the phones to hear your thoughts on that issue as well. So please give us a ring at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is Side. 
That was Now by Miguel. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming on WBAI.org and via podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes, where you can check us out with all of our previous episodes. Welcome back to Working Class Heroes Radio, y'all. Khadija, how have you been doing? I'm doing all right, Mel. I'm doing pretty well. As you know, I'm uh, down here in D.C., and the weather has been a lot warmer here today, so I'm, I'm really glad for that. and just excited to have another Saturday with Working Class Heroes listeners. I'm really excited. Um, Mel, how are you doing? That's awesome. Um, I'm doing I'm doing good. I recently had COVID, but I have recovered and I'm feeling good and I'm excited to be back on the air and doing this doing the show tonight. Yeah, welcome back, Mal. We're so, so glad you're doing much better and we're glad to have your voice back on with us. Um, so yeah, just to get started with this segment, um, we'd love to hear what our listeners have to say on the topic of resource seeking for undocumented people. So if you yourself are undocumented or have those close to you you care about who are, please give us a call to let us know what your experiences um, might have been like when seeking jobs, housing, etc. We know there are quite a few uh, bureaucratic hoops that our undocumented neighbors have to go through, and we just want to create some space to talk about it. So please give us a call at 212-209-2877. And let's just get into the discussion. Awesome. Well, to frame the topic a a little bit for listeners, we wanted to give an overview of the issue of unhoused folks in the city. The numbers are a little bit tricky to estimate and depends on how you define being unhoused, which is something we're going to be talking about throughout the show. But according to the Coalition for the Homeless, in December of 2020, there were 56,849 homeless people sleeping in shelters across the city. And on January 27th, an in-person citywide effort called the Hope Count counted 3,857 unsheltered individuals on streets and subways. And with more single adults sleeping in shelters than at any time in history, advocates have urged Governor Cuomo to prioritize permanent supportive housing for the unhoused. That's right. And between May and August, the age-adjusted COVID-19 mortality rate for unhoused New Yorkers sleeping in shelters was 78% higher than the citywide average. Governor Cuomo has made a commitment to create 20,000 units of supportive housing, but only 6,000 have been funded so far. And despite the unprecedented need, only one in five applicants approved for supportive housing is able to secure a placement and move out of a shelter or off the streets and into a home of their own. So on, on Working Class Heroes, you know, we've talked a lot about the struggles that undocumented immigrants uh, face. But one of the things we want to look at in this show is what they face when they've come into the U.S. and struggle to survive. We'd like to take a look at some of those challenges, particularly those of undocumented unhoused immigrants, with a special guest we have joining us today. Absolutely. Um, so today we have Amaya with the Wantna Community Center, who works to assist undocumented immigrants secure the services they need in order to survive. Maya, welcome to Working Class Heroes. Hi, <laughs> thanks for having me on the show. 
Absolutely. Um, so just to our listeners, our phone lines are now open. So if you'd like to st- share your stories of the challenges faced by undocumented people in seeking housing and services, whether it's you or someone in your life, or if you have any questions for Amea, please give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. And Amea, to start us off, can you just introduce yourself and maybe share with us some things that you'd like for our listeners to know about you? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Amea, and I'm from New York, and I currently work in Harlem, and I direct case management at WANA Community Center, which is a nonprofit that just started this year, um, but actually has um, was founded out of two church programs that have been around and volunteer run for the last you know, 20 or 30 years. So there's like a long history um, behind some of the work we do. And we run weekly um, food pantry, soup kitchen, and mobile soup kitchen, and a daily refugee shelter um, for asylum seekers. Awesome. Um, well, it sounds like you all do a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I think for, for this, you know, for this segment, we really wanted to focus on what undocumented folks in particular face when they are trying to seek work um, or seek housing in particular. So could you tell us a little bit about like what that experience might be like for somebody who's undocumented and and seeking those services? Yeah, um, so I can't really speak for all um, different forms of guess of like, or reasons for being undocumented, but I know specifically for asylum, for po- applying for asylum, um, there are like two major pathways to apply for asylum. Um, one is coming into the country and once you're, on U.S. soil, filing for asylum with a lawyer. And the other is if you've been detained at an airport or a stop, and then you apply for asylum in detention. Um, and so what we do is after, you know, if it, if someone in either situation needs shelter, we provide shelter and then do one-on-one case management. Um, and so I guess if you are coming into the country and you haven't you know, been stopped by detention, your kind of first step is really finding a lawyer and, um, and applying for asylum. But after you apply, um, and the government has a record stamp that they received your application, then you have to wait. It used to be six months, but this last year, Trump extended it to a year, um, before you get your social security number. And so that leaves you about a year, um, if not longer, if you can't find a lawyer and, it takes you a while to file for asylum and complete the application. You can be undocumented for an even longer period of time. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's just one of the many gaps that it sounds like exist for undocumented and unhoused people. Can you think of any other, um, you know, challenges or gaps in services that, that undocumented folks find when, when trying to seek these services? Yeah. So, um, you know, in that year when you're waiting for your social security number and your work authorization, um, you're really restricted from a lot of resources that you might um, assume otherwise that you would be eligible for and should be eligible for. And a lot of those restrictions also depend state by state. So, for instance, um, the federal government won't provide um, insurance or medical insurance, Medicaid or anything, but the city will supplement an emergency Medicaid. It's not 
very like encompassing of a lot of different um, needs and services, but the city supplements that separately. And in order to get that, you also need some sort of ID. And um, for instance, the New York City ID has been, um, and now the New York State has recently opened up, I think a year and a half ago, driver's licenses. Um, but then they overruled that with another like federal <laughs> ID, state ID. So there's this back and forth with IDs in terms of trying to get access um, to some form of ID so that you can apply for insurance and apply for some other resources. But um, I mean, something we struggled with is when applying for a city ID, a lot of our clients um, have their birth certificates laminated because they're traveling overseas and in different environments that are unpredictable. And it makes sense that you would want to laminate your birth certificate, but New York City won't accept um, laminated birth certificates as an authentic form of documentation because it's laminated. Um, and it's ridiculous because, you know, if we go, if a case manager goes in with a client or a social worker goes in, then all of a sudden you can kind of bypass that regulation or figure out a way around it because it is an authentic document. But um, we've had clients have to go like three, four or five times to appointments to get, you know, some type of ID. Yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, um, so I, I just want to check in for our callers. I know we don't have any callers yet, but I did want to remind you all that our lines are open. So please give us a call at 212-209-2877. And May is here for your any questions. Um, again, that number is 212-209-2877. So Amaya, how has COVID and the pandemic impacted the, the process for, for seeking work or for seeking housing if you're, if you're undocumented and, and unhoused? Yeah, I mean, so like I said, our shelter, um, anyone who comes in has like different forms of documentation at different points in their asylum process. And so, you know, if um, if our clients are undocumented, we still will work with them towards goals that, you know, they deserve to have, for instance, work. Um, if even if you have to wait a year and a half to till you receive your work authorization, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to have an apartment and be able to work off the books or some other type of job. Um, but, you know, something we've struggled with is a lot of off the book industries in New York, like, um, for instance, restaurants or cleaning services. After COVID, those industries have been completely hit really hard and um, are now really struggling. And now there's a lot less jobs. So there's just kind of the stagnantness for a lot of our clients where they're kind of caught being homeless because they can't work and find some type of um, income. And then they also, you know, housing is very dependent on that. And, um, and look, like we said, a lot of the government services like shelters um, to get access into certain shelters, you do need some form of documentation. Um, they're big assessment shelters, but a lot of the, kind of uh, transitional shelter programs or, you know, public housing, all of those programs are, um, you're ineligible until, you know, you're sat, you receive some type of documentation. So, Amelia, I was wondering, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of like interlocking services from like federal, state and, and city that folks are eligible for and then have to somehow figure out how to navigate. Um, but I, I was wondering kind of real fast, how um, how do individuals, you know, like if, if they are somehow in, in a gap of, of services, what does an organization like the one that you work for 
um, do in those situations. And I know you also follow a mutual aid model um, in general and figure out ways to be scrappy with what you can do. And, and it's something I know we're going to be talking about later on as well in the show. Um, but how do you all deal with those kinds of situations? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the fact that um, we are a new nonprofit, but we have a history of um, being in a church, I think b- builds this model of uh, mutual aid and kind of like giving based off of dignity and quality of life over like what other systems are controlling your documents. Um, Cause you know, just because you are waiting to receive documents doesn't mean that, or trying to navigate that process doesn't mean that you shouldn't um, be like, have access to housing and food and basic resources. Um, like snap for instance is uh, food is not, you're not eligible for even if you're homeless. Um, and so you know, we try to like fundraise or provide some type of like extra support, um, depending on different situations and really like dig deep for programs that can, um, cater to like unique circumstances, but we're one of the only places in the city doing it. And so it's very like exhausting and just even, um, it doesn't feel like you're doing much because there's so many people seeking asylum and so many people who are homeless and yet we have eight spots. So, Um, it's really like one-on-one and going in depth to each person's situation and trying to find ways to like uh, create solutions um, with the things that they're struggling with over, you know, you have this documentation, this is what you can get, deal with it type of thing, Um, which I think is the case for a lot of service programs because you're kind of hand-tied with what the government programs offer. For sure. Um, I think actually we have a caller on the line. Uh, caller, are you with us? Yes, hello. Good evening. Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine. Uh, my name is Ricky, calling in from Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. I have a question, and I even believe I have the answer to the question. So here's the question. Why does not the United States government provide for its people communal farms like they have in the country of Israel and New Zealand. And in Israel, they're called kibbutzes. Kibbutzim, I was on them. Excellent heaven. The answer to the question about why they don't have any communal farms for the people is because communal farms are considered too communist. Thank you so much. you have these communal farms, Awesome. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it would, you know, I, I know the the ones you're referring to in Israel are, are not equitable since, of course, it leaves out the Palestinians. So I do want to mention that. Um, but yeah, I think our caller was asking about um, like feeding of all people right in the U.S., um, which is definitely important in, in a human right. I don't know if anyone has thoughts on that, whether it's uh, Mel or Amaya, if you have anything to say. Yeah, Maya, maybe, you know, that could lead us into a kind of like concluding question, which is about what kinds of changes you'd like to see um, to the programs that the city does provide. Um, and, you know, maybe it is something in line with what the caller was talking about, but I'm sure you have thoughts about um, what you would like to see. Yeah, I mean, um, in terms of what the caller was talking about, I, you know, the interesting thing is that food pantries and soup kitchens don't require documentation, but SNAP does. And there's something about uh, the way the government, the U.S. government models like 
money for food as different than the actual food, even if um, distributing like SNAP as, you know, providing more funding for SNAP and distributing it more widely, even if that could solve a lot of food insecurity, just that there's this, I think there's even legal framework in the policy that the SNAP, the money provided for SNAP is the government's money, not the person's food. Um, It's like ownership of the government. So yeah, (laughs) I mean, I think that's frustrating. And I, you know, if you could provide more funding for SNAP and all of the cuts they've been trying to make for SNAP, you know, I, yeah, I can't, I don't understand why uh, food would be restricted to documentation. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we're actually basically at at time, but Amaya, this has been a great conversation. We really appreciate you um, breaking all this down for, for us and our listeners. Um, I just wanted to ask if you have any last thoughts you wanted to add, any, you know, any work that you might want to bump or anything like that. Um, No, I mean, I think just uh, really like paying attention, you know, something I didn't mention is just uh, when you look at where resources are, um, you know, like they'll say asylees or they say refugees, but um, you don't get those resources unless you have that, that status. And so, I don't know, I, you know, the whole mutual aid model and finding time when you can to really, uh, you know, learn more about where the gaps are in resources and how we can kind of like, as a community fundraise around it to provide, you know, services for where there's, there are gaps. Um, that's something that's, I think, really important. So Absolutely, that makes sense. Um, well, we are going to take a quick musical break. And when we come back, Lupita will take over to chat with the organizers with Southern Solidarity about their mutual aid work and how people can take up the cause of unhoused people. Que olvide ese mar de sufrimientos que de ella se aparte todo tormento para criarme tuvo que pasar los caminos de la vida no son como yo pensaba como los imaginaba no son como yo creía los caminos de la vida son muy difícil de andarlos difícil de caminarlos yo no encuentro la Good evening, everybody. That was Los Caminos de la Vida by Lila Downs. You are listening to Working Class Heroes Radio right here on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming on WBAI.org. And shout out to all of our podcast listeners. This episode will drop on Monday, so give it a listen there too. Uh, My name is Lupita Romero, and I am really happy to be here today. 
Um, thank you, Khadija and Mel, for getting us to this segment. That last conversation was one, very necessary, and two, very enraging. Um, I myself am undocumented, and I work with undocumented people as a, as a paralegal, and uh, those issues just hit so close to home. Um, and really, if anyone is in need of resources, uh, we will be posting all of that information on our social media pages and our website. Um, so please do take a look at those if you or anyone you know is undocumented and in need of resources. So now to kind of switch gears, um, we're going to continue to talk about housing. Tonight, we are joined by two members of Southern Solidarity, a volunteer-led grassroots community-based group that organizes delivery of food, medical resources, and basic needs directly to people who are unhoused. They were based in New Orleans, but have since expanded to our streets here in New York City, aka Lenape land. Uh, so we want to introduce them. And if you want to call in with thoughts or questions, our lines are open the entire interview. So please do give us a ring at 212-209-2877. So welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio. Um, I want to let y'all introduce yourselves and if you can share something that you'd like our, our listeners to know about you. Hey everyone, I'm Jasmine Araujo. I um, am one of the founding members of Southern Solidarity, um, and I'm just really excited to be here around all of these amazing people who have been running Working Class Heroes. Um, so excited. Yeah. Um, hey everyone, I'm Callie Villarosa. Um, I'm in New Orleans right now, but I'm from Brooklyn, New York. So whoop, whoop, New York. Um, and also just really super happy to be here. I've been in New Orleans for about a year now. Um, and really one of the reasons I came down here was to just get to know organizing in a different city and to just strengthen my organizing and like skills towards building a stronger liberation movement. And so excited to talk about it here, excited to keep doing the work. So thank y'all. Absolutely. Um, I'm really hyped. Um, for our listeners and maybe a lot of people who haven't heard the term unhoused, we're used to, you know, sort of thinking about homelessness um, as a phenomenon in and of itself. But why do y'all use the term unhoused as opposed to homeless? Um, you can break that down a little bit for us. Absolutely. So there are three elements that we think about when we use the word unhoused. And I think that, that it's important. Um, it's just such a great question that you're asking that because it's important to take into consideration how organizers really think about all of the words that we're using. Um, and, and just, it's so important to, when you're doing this work, to be mindful of language. And so uh, I appreciate that question. So the first element of that question is we're, we are really focused on the dignity of unhoused people. We live in a country that has absolutely had a devious war on poor people for decades now, um, especially considering austerity measures of the last four decades. Um, so when we think about dignity of unhoused people, we're thinking about what do they want to, to how do they want um, to be referred to as, and we've heard the word unhoused before from people. Um, and I think that the reason why they've chosen to use that word or one of the reasons that we've heard is that 
unhoused people have homes. So to call them homeless is um, not very clear. It's not, it doesn't, you know, it's, you're not, you're not really acknowledging their humanity. People have homes inside of themselves. They, you know, we have different ideas of homes. They consider the outdoor area that they, where they are to be their home and they want it to be respected. And so to, to say homeless is just not accurate. Um, and then the last thing I want to say is that we do use it interchangeably, though, because if people do say, I want to, I don't mind being referred to as homeless, I think I want to normalize people seeing homeless people are referring to the word homeless and, and seeing our dignity regardless. So there is some flexibility there. We're mostly our jobs as organizers is to listen to folks on the ground. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it, that brought it together beautifully um, and just really brings to the dignity that we're trying to lift up and just center within our work. And I think also just when thinking about it, even just in the actual phrasing of the term, I think you can also think about how the term unhoused can more directly imply that there's a moral and social assumption that everyone should be housed in the first place. And I think that is something that we're really trying to get to within our work, that it's it's not the individual's fault that they are unhoused in any way. Like That is why we also use the term, because this is a huge issue that people do not have adequate homes, shelter places that they can really just reside and feel safe. And this is a fault of the country and the state that we are living in. I really hear that. Um, I really hear that. And I think that, you know, when I first heard the term and sort of that idea of, you know, homeless people, especially when we're talking about under capitalism and this society, people being homeless for really for decades and how hard it is to you know, get to a place where you're housed once you've been plunged into that level of poverty, into that level of um, being pushed to the side and, and ignored. Um, and growing up in East Elmhurst for myself, um, you know, definitely seeing homeless people and and throughout the year sort of feeling like I really got to know those people even when I didn't approach them just from like where they hung out, what they did. And I think it got to a point where, you know, I sort of began to interact with my neighbors, um, you know, when I could and wasn't running late to work, offering them breakfast, um, offering to come to the coffee shop and buy them something, you know, not out of anything but the feeling that I have grown up with these people on my corner and um, there is a value in getting to know them. Um and so I think that that's something that, you know, here in New York City, especially, we just have such a culture of walking past people. Um, so I did want to kind of know, um, you know, they're sort of like wanting to help um, unhoused neighbors. And then there's like actually getting up and doing it the way that y'all are doing it. So, Callie, I want to know, like, what was your first day with Southern Solidarity on the streets like? Um, you know, if you can describe for us like what that experience was and what your role is now. Um, so it's kind of funny. The first day I actually kind of caught up with Soso. Um, I had just moved to New Orleans. So I was super, super new to the city. Um, and a friend of mine was like, yo, you got to check out this really amazing organization. Um, they do a lot of really great grassroots work. They're based in abolition. They're very radical. So I pull up to Jasmine's house and Distro was in full strength. Full swing. What's distro for anyone who doesn't know? So distribution. So that's basically when we are going around and kind of figuring out how to 
connect with different unhoused folks and like provide any supplies and food services and medical services and things like that um, that we have. So I was very new to it. Every like everything was in full swing. Jasmine was basically like jump in your car, follow the truck. Um, <laughs> so we got right down to business right away. And I think that was just very beautiful too, because it was watching people engage with each other as community members. It was it was actually building relationships with people um, and knowing them like either on a first name basis or just figuring out how to get to know them and figuring out what they wanted specifically, how to incorporate their voice. Um, and I think a lot of what I do now, like I think I've shifted gears a little bit more to do a little bit more of the political action work too, because I think a huge part of our radical work is figuring out how do we not only educate folks, uplift folks, but really hit all of the intersections that are necessary. Because when you're talking about unhoused folks, you're talking about housing justice, you're talking about environmental justice, you're talking about food sovereignty, you are talking about economic justice, you are talking about what does it mean to adequately uplift the working class. Um, and so within doing political education, we are talking about sweeps that take place, um, which is basically when the city goes to unhoused encampments with garbage trucks and disposes of people's belongings and property. Um, we, which is just entirely humane, inhumane. So we're trying to figure out how do we stop that from taking place? What does it mean to put our bodies physically in the space? We're also talking about direct action work. So how do we reclaim different properties and housing that have just been abandoned and should be used as spaces that these folks can reside in instead of just sitting empty? Um, we are doing a lot of food sovereignty work in terms of building our own gardens and figuring out how we can be sustainable in that way and understand how to grow our own food within our own communities so we're not relying on exploitative capitalist food and agricultural structures. Um, so to sum up, I do, I do a lot here and there <laughs> um, and just trying to figure out what does it mean to really have values based in abolition? What does it mean to uplift folks and center the needs of unhoused people. Absolutely. That sounds, um, that sounds really dope. And I, I really dig the political education part um, because, you know, I, I think again, we just grow up with such a normalization of, of people who are homeless and or unhoused and why they end up that way. And it, it ends up moralizing really um, people's choices as opposed to the fact that we have a system where housing isn't affordable, where people are not paid enough to pay their rent. Um, and mm -hmm. we're really, you know, even when, even if you're not out on the streets, you know, people sleeping on other people's house uh, houses, on their couches, you know, in transition, not really being able to call a place your own, that also counts as as being unhoused. And, and as times comes with, with a level of poverty where you just sort of need resources um, of all kinds. Um, you know, I think one of one of the best social workers that I've ever worked with, um, one of the things that she's really trained me to think is, is how much people's well-being kind of relies on housing first. Everything comes after. Mm -hmm. You don't have a house, you are absolutely in survival mode. Um, so I just want to ask one last quick question before we take a musical break. Um, Jasmine, I know that um, you were a founding member of uh, Southern Solidarity. I wanted to know, you know, how did this all start for you? And um, I know that you've moved into New York City now. How has that happened? Did that sort of happen organically? Yeah. 
Um, thank you for that question. Yeah, so I started, I founded Southern Solidarity in March of last year when the pandemic had just started. I had, was going on a lot of walks, but I think what's important while I was going on these walks is that I already had an organizing lens um, because I had organized in education, trying to unionize a school where I was, I had worked in, in New Orleans for seven years. Um, so I was, you know, walking around the city with this organizing lens, on, uh, understanding that there was a pandemic that was going on and that unhoused people were not being adequately, the information was not going to them, right? I mean, they're, they're displaced, they're a displaced population that has been severed from mainstream um, information. And so I was just trying to figure out, I was just trying to assess the situation by going on these long walks. Um, then I started figuring out wh what was needed and mobilizing and recruiting, mostly in the beginning BIPOC organizers to help um, get these resources for unhoused people and the information that they needed around the pandemic. Then I started fundraising and partnering with long-term organizers, housed and unhoused healers in the community, archivist organizations that had been doing this work for a long time to give us training. Um, and then uh, as the group got bigger and bigger, we started to engage in more trainings around political education on Black feminist eco-socialist vision-making. Um, so all to say that it, it happened so quickly, but because I was coming and other people on the team who became attracted to the organization were coming with this grounding in political education and as with their organizer lens, we were able to go in and not be the kind of organization that just parachutes in and, um, you know, they're with full of transplants, full of white people doing things not very critically and replicating um, these imperialist practices that we're all so used to doing. So we weren't we were trying to break free of that and really be intentional with the work we do. Um, so, yeah, that was the first part of your question. Um, <laughs> it, it's been so incredible to see the kinds of um, political projects that have grown out of out of the pandemic, you know, and I think it really kind of speaks to, you know, people just think that working class people just survive, like that's all we do. And, and it's, it's just insulting to the actual level of resilience, organization, scale, um, you know, community building that that people are able to lead, um, you know, from their experiences being working class um, and being poor. We are going to take a quick break. Um, and when we come back, we'll just continue the conversation. Um, if you are listening to this, gather your thoughts, give us a ring. If you have any questions for uh, Jasmine and Callie, please, please give us a ring at 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. We will be right back.
days I'm heading for the pen I try to find my friends But they're blowing in the wind Last night my body lost his whole family It's gonna take the man in me to conquer this insanity It seems the rain will never let up I try to keep Right. That was Keep Your Head Up by NAS. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio right here on WBAI 99.5. Whoa, whoa, we whoa, whoa go- my bad. Real quick. That was Tupac. Keep your head up. Not Nas. Okay. Don't Did I disres- that wrong? You got that so wrong. <laughs> Don't disrespect Tupac like that. I'm Tupac, we're sorry. R.I.P. All right. Continue. My bad. New York City. Rights revoked. I am no longer from this city. My bad, y'all. Oof. How do I recover? All right. We're going to pivot to our interview. That is how I'll do that. Um, so to pick up on our conversation, we are talking to Southern Solidarity, um, who are out here in New Orleans and New York doing mutual aid work with uh, unhoused people. So um, when we left off, you were sort of speaking to um, the political education that y'all do and sort of having a model of um, liberation. And it seems that feminism, uh, Black liberation politics is all part of your politic. Would y'all want to tell me um what are the organizations that you've looked up to? You're definitely not an NGO. You're volunteer run. You're, you know, from the community. So I just want to know who are the, the revolutionaries that inspire you, the organizations or models that you are sort of inspired by? Sure. Um, well, I think Jasmine kind of touched on this earlier, but we're very much rooted in this Black feminist eco-socialist vision of how we do things. And I think what comes out of that is, one, this very strong commitment to mutual aid. And if we're thinking about organizations that we can, or just folks that really center this, I think first comes to mind is definitely Black Panthers. Um, you have Fannie Lou Hammer, you have Young Lords, you have Harriet Tubman, you think of the Tambahi River Collective, and you're just thinking of these powerful, powerful organizations and folks that have showed like, it is about uplifting the people. It is about breaking down these structures. It is about taking oppression out at its roots. And so all of our work is grounded in that. And we look a lot to those who have come before us who have started this work and we're just here to continue it and make it stronger. Absolutely. I just want to follow up um, and mention that all of these uh, figures that Callie mentioned and or, and groups uh, have a com- made a commitment to engage in placemaking. And Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls that act of, of placemaking um, as gathering the materials that you need to self-actualize for, I'm sorry, ga- um, gathering the materials you need for your community to, to actualize. Um, so it's a, this process of um, having resources at hand so that you can uh, ha- be autonomous and have sovereignty over land and food. So we want to get as close to that as possible. And that is the vision for Southern Solidarity. Awesome. So we do have two callers on the line. I want to bring them up. Um, and then if we have a time for another question, we'll do that. Um, so caller number one, what is your name? Where are you calling from? And what are your thoughts? Okay, my name's Eric. I'm calling from Williamsburg. Uh, my thoughts are many right now. Uh, I'm going to try to be as quick as possible because there are other antecedents that they haven't mentioned that they should. The whole time 
with Upton Sinclair with his own end poverty in California, which was a major mutual aid episode, to a less well known person that end house homelessness was B. Charlie Vladek, the Bundist left Jew who in New York City was demanding that the city take over or they would directly take over houses held for profit that were vacant when people needed places to live. The history of mutual aid is deep and it didn't start in the 50s or 60s or even 30s. The strongest period that the United States had this. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing that in. Um, I don't know who the folks that you mentioned uh, name dropped are, but, um, you know, I think if Jocelyn Cowley, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad that you highlighted the fact that emancipatory mutual aid is not something that's new. I think we as organizers really need to hone in on that. It's, it's um, You can see Harriet Tubman's work of network building across the um, South as a form of mutual aid. Anytime you're engaging in uplifting the material conditions of people such as the Black Panther's Breakfast Program, you're engaging in this work of, of mutual aid to the end of getting to that point of, like I was saying, placemaking and um, sovereignty. Right. And I think that that's kind of what makes the real difference between um, charity, right, and and solidarity. Um, uh, we have one more caller. Uh, caller, please give us your name. Where are you calling from? And do you have any questions or answers? Yeah. Um, yeah. Hello? Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. My name's Hannah. Okay. Um, I'm from Queens. Now, I'm, I'm calling. One of the things is that what the problem is is um, the structure of the, the country and what we are. Um, we are a republic, and we have been run by, like, a, 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 a democracy. We're not a democracy. And this is one of the problems we're having, and this is why we have the problems we do, because we're supposed to be a free country. So if we're a free country, a republic is very important to maintain that. That's why people think capitalism is bad. Capitalism is bad because what the government is supposed to do is protect people's rights. That's what government is for. Well, I will definitely agree with you that we are not a democracy. Um, I think we ourselves at Working Class Heroes do believe that capitalism is the root of all of our evils as workers. Um, but I appreciate your sentiment. We are definitely not a democracy. Um, I want to wrap up this interview by... Um, Bringing it back to New York City, you are now here um, in New York. You know, Governor Cuomo um, has faced this homelessness crisis for so many years. Um, advocates, uh, you know, how people who are doing uh, tenants' rights work have been asking him to fund uh, affordable housing. He committed to create 20,000 units, um, and out of those, only 6,000 have been funded, and the number of those affordable housing units that have actually been built and given to, afford to low-income New Yorkers is e abysmal. It is um, even lesser than that, and so I, I really think that, you know, when we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, how many people are at risk of eviction right now, and just the inaction of the governor, I, I'm wondering, what are y'all seeing 
um, in the streets in New York, on the subway? What's going on? What should New Yorkers know about this? Um, thank you for that question. It's so important to know what's happening on the ground. Um, so we have been distributing weekly um, in Penn Station, so in the MTA. And what we're seeing is so many hundreds of people crowded in this train station during COVID trying to survive, um, you know, not being, not dying from exposure, which is ex- dying from extreme weather. Um, and so things have been really grisly out there. Um, and what we're seeing is the continual, the continuation of carceral geographies impacting un- vulnerable unhoused people while they're trying to find shelter in the MTA. Um, right now, our main organizing plan is to really fight this carceral geography as we see it um, on the ground uh, in the form of police officers harassing unhoused folks while they're on the train. Um, And so we hope to move deeper into that. Totally. Um, For all of our listeners who may want to get involved or, you know, link up with y'all, uplift your work, how can they get in touch? And um, yeah, any other good stuff you want to bump up for our listeners? Yeah, please follow us on Instagram where uh, you can find us under Southern Solidarity. And then we're also on Twitter under Southern Solid. We are on Facebook as well. If you want to, if you're in New York City and you want to volunteer, we are recruiting BIPOC organizers. Um, And so just shoot us a message. Amazing. Um, We are out of time for tonight. Um, I want to thank all of our callers tonight uh, for their provocative thoughts on all of these issues. Um, Please follow us on social media um, where you can see what all of our politics are and where we stand on different topics. we want to hear more about Southern Solidarity. We'll also be covering their work um, from now on um, and keep updating y'all on all of it. Um, and I just want to say to all New Yorkers who are out there, you know, if you are not unhoused and you are seeing all of this um, in the streets, even when you can't stop to give any resources to folks or maybe you can't do this level of work, just be kind, um, you know, offer a hello and just know that these people, especially those who uh, remain in our neighborhoods for long periods of time unhoused, you know, they can always use a little kindness. They can always use some solidarity. Um, So I want to thank all of our um, team here at Working Class Heroes, Danny and Julian for our headlines, Khadija and Mel, our gracious hosts, um, chillest of hosts. I also want to thank Yanni for her behind the scenes research on the topic of the unhoused in New York City and Southern Solidarity. Y'all have been amazing. I hope that one of these days I can join your distro, which is happening at this very minute um, that we are talking. Mm -hmm. So I know y'all are out here. Um, Thank you so much for the work that y'all are doing. And lastly, to the best producer in New York City, um, Gio, thank you so much for getting us through this show. You're welcome. Uh, We're going to call it a night, y'all. Say good night. Thank you. Good night. Catch us next time. And until then, stay safe, New York, and as always, in solidarity. She the winner. She the rebel in the sky. She the fighter. She kept me.